I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open to the book of Judges. Today we finish a series that we've been talking about, and we pick it up in chapter 20. And as we do, uh, let me set the stage for the end of this book by reading for you a vision of God that is consistent throughout the entire Bible. And this is found in Psalms chapter 47. It says this in Psalm 47. It says, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. God is presented in the Bible as a great and mighty king. He is referred to repeatedly as the ruler over the earthly realm and the ruler over the spiritual realm. God is the one whom all recognition and complete surrender is due. And yet, as we come to the concluding chapters of the book of Judges, we see a resounding theme that we've seen throughout the whole book, a phrase that's been repeated again and again and again. And this is the phrase. It says, In those days... There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. A lack of recognition of God being king was the rule of the day in Israel. And the results or the dynamic that happens when God is not recognized as king is that everyone begins just to do what is right in their own eyes. They follow their own thoughts, their own ideas, their own desires, their own affections. And what we see in ancient Israel is also, I think we can say, a defining description of Western culture today. We live in a time that can be defined by the mass population of everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. And so today, in the first half of the message, uh, we conclude the series called Breaking the Cycle, or Break the Cycle, and we describe to you how the book ends. And you will get to the end of this story of Judges, and you'll take a step back and you'll say, well, well wait a minute. That's not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, I thought the Bible was supposed to be uplifting. I thought that God's people were supposed to do great things. I thought there was supposed to be encouragement and joy that's attached to this. But this book does not end this way. You will say to yourself, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. In the second half of the message, we will be addressing some implications about how, what can we learn from this? What are some of these negative examples that we see or propensities, even for us Christians today, that mirror, intersect some of the, the spiritual symptoms of the Israelites in the book of Judges? will be confronted with the reality that in our day, just like in those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And what seemed right to Israel in chapter 20 of the book of Judges, it seemed right to them to purge the land of a town called Gibeah. But instead, this resulted in an all-out war against the entire tribe of Benjamin. Let me remind you, 
or if you haven't been here the last couple weeks, let me fill you in on where we've been. Two weeks ago, we saw a story in the book of Judges of a few people who were trying to convince themselves that what they were doing was the right thing. They weren't trying to follow God. They were just trying to convince themselves of their own desires. And so what they did is that they, they hired a personal priest. You remember that? And in hiring a personal priest, they said, well, we want to do these things, and we want you to provide a veil of spiritual blessing over the activities that we want to pursue as a supposed representative of God. And we learned that spiritual manipulation like that is contrary to God's ways, but beyond that, that it actually leads to circumstances of spiritual life and even practicality in which our circumstances just begin to crumble and fall apart. Last week we saw in Judges 19 a, a really hard one. We saw an outrageous account of this city in the tribe of Benjamin, a city called Gibeah, in which there was a lot of wicked practices happening. And this story centered around the event of the raping and murdering of a young concubine woman. And in response, her husband, a Levite man, took his wife home after spending the night in this town in which she was killed and he cut her body into 12 pieces and he sent the 12 pieces throughout all the tribes of Israel as a warning. It was to shock them and it succeeded. That wickedness is in the land. Wickedness of the most heinous kind. And that's where we pick up the story today. We see in Judges chapter 20 that now the people are gathering together in response to this wickedness and to receiving these limbs in the mail. And 400,000 representatives of Israel come together as one body. And in Judges chapter 20, we pick up the story at verse 8. And we'll just read verse 8 to 11 right now. This is what it says. It says that all the people arose as one man, saying, none of us will go to his tent and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it lot by lot. And we will take 10 men of 100 throughout the tribes of Israel and 100 of 1,000 and 1,000 of 10,000 to bring provisions for the people that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. There's a unified vengeance that's about to happen. And they're going to purge this wicked town of Gibeah from their midst. They did not inquire of the Lord. This is what they thought was right to do in their own eyes. And so let me summarize what comes next in verses 12 to 25. We see that this town of Gibeah is part of the tribe of Benjamin, but Benjamin as a tribe does not want to give up the people of Gibeah. They would rather go to war. They're defending their brothers, even by defending their wickedness. And so what starts out as a simple battle against one town becomes an all-out civil war with 11 tribes of Israel zeroing in and focusing on the one tribe of Benjamin. They found themselves now in a situation that is much more significant than they thought. But this is the picture of sin, isn't it? I mean, it starts small. 
And it has this propensity to snowball into actions or ways or thoughts that we can't quite contain, that are out of control. And so, the 11 tribes line up against the one, and shockingly, on the first day, the one tribe of Benjamin defeats the 11 tribes in battle, and 22,000 men of Israel died. On the second day, they line up for battle again, and again, the one tribe of Benjamin defeats the other 11 tribes in battle. 18,000 more men die on that day. And the people of Israel are confused. They're broken. They're, they're saying, what is going on here? I mean, clearly there's a spiritual dynamic at play. 11 against 1. Do the math, right? And so this is how they express their brokenness, starting in verse 26 of chapter 20. Look at it with me. Verse 26 says, Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up, and they came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. For the Ark of the Covenant was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days. And he said, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? Or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. And then we move to the battle sequence, start in verse 36. What's happening is that they're setting up the army, and they're going to, instead of just lining up on the battlefield, army versus army, they're going to employ sort of a traditional ambush. The Israelite main army will line up in front of the army of the Benjamites. All the while, they're sending another group of people around behind the battle lines to burn the city behind them. And so we see the account of that, verse 36, starting halfway through the verse. It says, the men of Israel... In the battle gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in the ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. And the men in the ambush hurried and they rushed against Gibeah. The men in the ambush moved out and they struck all the city with the edge of the sword. And now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up into the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and to kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. And the men of Israel turned and the men of Benjamin were dismayed for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore, they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noah as far as the opposite of Gilead on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and they fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. And 5,000 of them were cut down in the highways. And they were pursued hard at Gidom. And 2,000 of them were struck down. 
So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon and remained at the rock of Rimmon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin. They struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, the men, and the beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set them on fire. And so here's a summary. On a divine level, God is largely silent in this story. They are doing what is right in their own eyes. They think it's right to set vengeance against this town of Gibeah and therefore the tribe of Benjamin. They're devising their own plan according to what they want to do. Now, periodically, they'll call upon God for direction, even though they have their mind made up. I wonder if you ever do that. If you make up your mind about something and then call on God for direction after you've already made it up, as a sort of way to say, I want to do the right thing. I want to... I want to I want to make a spiritual decision about this important practical thing, but really I want to do what I want to do. I want God, oh God, I want you to baptize my decision for me. God, I, I, I want to, I, I want this thin veil of your blessing, even though this is what I really am going to do, whether you like it or not. As if we could somehow manipulate God. We trick ourselves in that way, don't we? Well, because these Israelites are trying to manipulate God, and he doesn't like that very much, it would appear that he punishes them, and that's why they lose the first two battles. They're lined up, 11 against 1. It's, the math is simple. This should be a quick and swift victory, and yet God is the one who is intervening. And this time he's intervening on behalf of the wicked ones, Benjamin, all to judge the people of Israel. But then God exercises his justice against Benjamin for the extraordinary evil that was committed and that evil then that was defended in the town of Gibeah. And so on the third day of the battle, we see that the town falls and that Israel becomes the victor. And we take a step back and we say, what on earth is going on here? God is the only righteous one in the story. Israel and the 11 tribes are not righteous. And the tribe of Benjamin is not righteous. And it's interesting here the imbalance of outrage that we see among the people in this book. Because the evil committed by the, the men of Gibeah was horrible. It was horrible evil. And in some ways it was more horrible than other evils. But, but we could very easily see other evils throughout the book that were worthy of outrage and anger and a response. Whether that's the spiritual manipulation of the Danites, or some of the other heinous acts earlier in the book. And, and yet, they're picking and choosing, aren't they? They're picking and choosing here who is acting righteously and who isn't based on their own standards. Christians are really good at that, aren't we? We're really good at picking and choosing the sins that we want to attack and the sins that we just want to quietly ignore whether that's in our own lives or in our own church or in our own communities. We love to excuse certain sins but attack others. I, th I think of a story not that long ago when uh, two of my kids came into the room that I was in and one was crying and one was laughing. And the one who was 
laughing had marker all over her face and her arms. And the one who was crying was saying, she stole my marker. (laughs) Never mind the fact that neither of them were supposed to be playing with markers in the first place. They had sort of quietly gone into the corner and pulled a chair over to the cupboard and climbed up and grabbed the markers that were supposed to be out of their reach. But the one who felt violated or stolen from wanted to highlight the sin of the other while not recognizing her own complicity in the first place. We are so good at that, and we learn it from the age of two or three, and we act that way throughout much of our lives. It seemed right to these people of Israel to to eliminate almost an entire tribe of their people. And this cuts to the core of the identity of the people of Israel. Twelve tribes, the twelve sons, all throughout redemptive history will hear about these twelve. And they brought them all the way up to the brink of extinction. But then another thing seemed right to them. It seems right to them to make two strong but very rash oaths. And that's where we pick up in chapter 21. And so we're going to read the entire chapter. It is certainly twisted and interesting enough to keep your attention. Um, Follow it with me. It says, now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mitzpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day, the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up to the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken another great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mitzvah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion on Benjamin, their brother, And said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, what is one, what one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mitzvah? And behold, no one had come up from the camp of Jabesh Gilead to the assembly For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. And so the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabeth Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. And the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimmon, and proclaimed peace to them there. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had just saved alive from the women of Jabeth Gilead. But there were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, 
that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters because we had sworn an oath. Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. And so they said, Behold, there's a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east of the highway, and it goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And, and they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out from the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us because we did not take them in battle. Neither did you give them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. And they went and they returned to their inheritance and they rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and his family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's where the book ends. And so here's a summary. The Israelites gather together and they make two oaths. This seems right to them somehow to do. The first oath was to say, the people of Benjamin, our brothers, our tribe, we are against them. And as punishment, we will not give any of our daughters to be the wives of their sons. Oath number one. Oath number two, we are all gathering together for a big sacred assembly at Mitzpah before the Lord. And if anybody doesn't come to the assembly, then they should be killed. And soon after that, they have a revelation. We've just decimated the entire tribe of Benjamin. There's only 600 of them left and they're all men. If they don't have wives, then the tribe will be wiped out completely. And they're overcome with grief. Now the fact that they didn't think about this in advance is pretty shocking when you think about it. But then again, when you go through life just doing whatever seems right in your own eyes without seeking the counsel from the Lord or to try to be obedient to his word, then you live a very short-sighted life. <laughs> And sin will take you to a place where you cannot see the end result or consequence. And it will bring you down a road that you cannot put back in the box. And that is what we're seeing very clearly here. And so ironically and unfortunately, these daughters of, of Benjamin suffer the same fate, the death of the concubine. And so then they, in their, in their moment of tenderness, they say to the Lord, in Judges chapter 21, verse 3, we just read it a moment ago, they're weeping before the Lord and they say, Oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking. And they use the covenant name of God, Yahweh, being represented in this, the Lord, the God of Israel. And it implies that the matter of Benjamin almost being decimated was ultimately God's responsibility. They're saying, not God... We're sorry for our sin and almost destroying our brother. They're not saying, 
genuinely, God, tell us why this is happening. They're saying very clearly, God, you're the one in charge. Why are you letting this happen? You shouldn't be doing this. When all the while they have not been seeking him, but they've only wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. And so God responds to them. And his response is a noticeable silence. You know, sometimes judgment from God doesn't come in the words that he says. Sometimes judgment from God comes in the words that he doesn't say. And here, he does not say anything. And so the Israelites continue the request in the form of a burnt offering. And this request is with regard to the second oath. And again, God responds in silence. The oath that they made was foolish. It was not godly. And it would not be used by God. And so now they have themselves in a pickle. (laughs) And they have the sacred assembly, the gathering, and by way of a roll call, it is revealed that there is one clan, Jabesh Gilead, that didn't send a delegation to the assembly. And conveniently, there's an opportunity here, and this is sin presents these incredible opportunities for us. Conveniently, the second bad oath, the second one was, remember, if you don't come to the assembly, you'll be put to death. <laughs> the second bad oath becomes a way for them to try to get out of the first bad oath. The first bad oath was Benjamin gets no daughters, none of our daughters as their wives. Follow it with me. It gets kind of complicated. We see that they send people to this clan of Jabeth Gilead. They kill everybody except for the young virgin daughters. And they bring the 400 young virgin daughters back to the men of Benjamin to give them wives. They don't have to break the first oath. Jabeth Gilead wasn't even there to make the oath in the first place. (laughs) So they're fine. They enact the second oath by killing all the men, women, children, except for the virgins. So they're supposedly fine on that. And in doing so, they only partially or selectively keep the second vow in order to try to keep their first vow. It seemed right to them. It's twisted. It seemed right to them to steal wives for people. 600 of them were needed, but you know what? This plan only gave them 400. And so how are we going to get 200 more wives for this tribe of Benjamin, who were just a couple minutes ago our worst enemies, so much we obliterated all of them, and now all of a sudden we feel tremendous compassion for? And a bad plan gets a lot worse. There to go to another local town at Shiloh, and during the annual feast of the Lord, they seize for themselves a wife from the young women who are dancers. And there's a term that they use. They say, lay in ambush. And when the young women come out, ambush them. This is a term that was just used in the previous chapter to decimate an entire city. This is a term that is like a a lion waiting to pounce on his prey. You see the irony, right? Israel is exacting vengeance on Benjamin because of the terrible act of rape and murder and abuse to this concubine woman. 
And now they have just sanctioned the kidnapping and eventual rape of 600 women. That is the logic or illogic of sin. Is that it brings you to a place of continued degradation. It gets worse. One sin here leads to vengeance. It results in a rash set of oaths being taken. It's tens of thousands of men dead on the battlefield. It's justifying an even greater sin. All under the veil of trying to remain righteous by keeping these oaths which were bogus in the first place. And we say to ourselves, this is not the way it's supposed to be. But the reason we got to this place, the reason why their society has crumbled, the reason why their spirituality has been corrupted, the reason why there's an outrageous cases of rape and murder that are met with even greater and outrageous cases of 600 kidnappings and rapes is all found in verse 25, the last verse of the book. It's the story of judges. It's the application for us today. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what is right in his own eyes. Friends, when you look at our culture today, the idea of not submitting to God as king and everyone doing what is right in their own eyes is pervasive. Actually, you could define almost in some ways aspects of Western culture along these types of descriptions. And we could talk and analyze that at great length. We could talk about problems in our society at great length. But I think rather than to do that, let me offer some challenges for many of us as we struggle in a very similar way to those who struggle in the period of Judges. Because like Israel, we express a desire to follow God. And yet so often, because we live in a culture that's continually eroding the idea of the kingship of God, we find ourselves in the position of doing what is right in our own eyes while simultaneously trying to sort of loosely follow God. And when we do that, when we, when we avoid what God says in his word or avoid what godly counsel says, what we're really saying is this. I don't want God to be king. <laughs> I want to be king. We see this in a number of ways. I think we've touched on some of them through the series. There's a vague notion in our society of tolerance. And, and this is even... Um, a notion among Christians today that is brought into our practice or into our interaction with each other when we say things like, particularly on issues of, of morality, we say things like, well, you know what, you, you be you and I'll be me. <laughs> and, and as long as uh, that works for you, I'm cool with that. And you stay out of the things that work for me. And even Christians begin to think this way after a while. And, and I also hear this a lot. I hear, my decision doesn't affect anyone but me. The things that I do behind the closed doors of my house or in my private life or my personal time, that doesn't affect anyone but me, as if you live in an isolated vacuum somewhere in a cave where you don't interact with anybody. But the problem with that is that we so often excuse ungodly behavior under the guise of wanting to be tolerant or loving and under this notion of tolerance. What we're really saying to each other when we communicate that way is you can be your king 
and I will be my king. (laughs) But we certainly don't want God to be king. I think another way that we do this in our culture today is very commonly with the idea of relationships and marriage and how we approach marriage and how we've seen even among Christians uh, in the last 25 years The idea of moving in together before marriage, of trying to test physical and sexual and emotional compatibility well in advance of taking commitment and vows. And what we do when we say that is to say, I don't want God to be king in that area of my life. I want to be king. Or how about how we choose to set down our roots and pursue a path of career. I mean, some of us choose a job and we go where the money is and then we ultimately let the terms of that career or that money set the agenda for the rest of our life. It defines the parameters, it sets the terms. As if we truly live to work. That's our purpose. And of course we should pursue careers, of course we should want to be successful in the things that we have. Of course, we should try to support our families and support them well. But when you don't genuinely see God's face or direction for location, for finances, for a career path, but if you simply follow the money, there is a sense in which you might be saying, I don't want God to be king. (laughs) I want to be king. Certainly, it's common in our midst and a struggle for all of us to serve ourselves before others. And whether that's in the things that please us through kind of hedonistic behavior or greed or, or very often pain relief in our day. There's, you know, there's all kinds of therapeutic terms now, many of which are legitimate and many of which are intentionally designed to mask or to veil self-indulgent behavior. It's a common marker of our society that it is built around making people emotionally content. But here's the problem. If a society is built around making people emotionally content, then there becomes an incredible disdain or dismissal, even among Christians, for the parts of God's word that will make you rightfully discontent. Because if you spend any time with the Lord at all in his word, you will be confronted. He will take your equilibrium and move it off kilter. He will change you out of the place that you are and move you to another place. But we so often in our time try to blunt those things. And, and, and we say things like this when, when there's a Sunday school class or a sermon or a conversation with a friend we say well you know I have a different interpretation than you do about that passage and so why don't you have your interpretation and I'll have mine and we'll be fine or or we say things like um you know I know that the Bible says that really hard thing right there but clearly that's That's antiquated from hundreds or thousands of years ago. And that's not what God really means. What God is really trying to do is to set us on a trajectory towards something. But it can't be applicable in this current form that it's mentioned because that's just just too antiquated for me. Or, Or we say things like, you know, by you talking about certain mindsets or behaviors, that's really mean. And I'm, I'm a loving Christian. 
And so if you want to talk about those things that I like as sin, then I'm just going to go to a place where the Christians really love each other and go to a different church because they'll accept me for who I am. And what we are saying when we do those sorts of things is we're saying, I don't want God to be king. (laughs) I want to be king. Let's hone in a little bit closer to home, move away from some of the cultural issues to some of the more common struggles that we have as Christians. One of the ones that I see with some regularity is an unwillingness to receive, for Christians even to receive counsel from other Christians. There's a, there's a hardness about certain areas of life um, that is to our own detriment. We tend to think to ourselves, if, if a person doesn't agree with my approach then not only are they not a thinking person, but they're also a nasty person, as if we can't have like, legitimate back-and-forth dialogue anymore. They're not right, and they're mean. Don't impose on me your ideas about life. I don't want to receive them. But you begin to trickle that down a little bit and realize that none of us can just sort of figure this all out as we go, that we actually not only need God's word to help guide us, but we need the wisdom and experience of other people who have perspective. And when we find ourselves in a position where we're unwilling to receive counsel from our godly friends or relatives, then it moves into these areas like child rearing, which is one of the most sacred of them all. Don't tell me how to raise my kids. Or vocation or marriage or finance because finance is very personal and so for some reason we have these off-limit topics that we're unwilling to receive direct counsel on because those are the private things and so this is what happens though what happens is that when a situation gets so bad that you can't handle it any longer When the marriage that you could have received counsel on all the way along is now at the point of complete disintegration. Or you're in a job that you've been for eight years and it's it's a bad fit. And you're wondering if it's too late to change course. And, And somebody probably could have helped you think about that a little bit more carefully way back in the beginning. Or you wonder if it's or you wonder if it's too late to make that change. Or maybe now your child is at a point where they're in complete and utter rebellion, not only from the Lord, but also from you, but they're only a year away from going to college. And you're starting to freak out because you're saying, I can't just send them off into the big bad world in this type of state that they're in. While the whole time there have been people around you to help you foster and shepherd them in a direction, but you haven't been able to hear it, But only when it gets to these points of desperation, then we seek help. But my friends, this is like being terminally ill and having symptoms all the way along, but waiting to go to the doctor until you're almost dead. It doesn't make any sense at all, but this is the way that we function in our society all the long, all the way long by keeping these areas of our lives off limits to the counsel from the Bible or from other godly people around us. And when we do that, what we're really saying, we'd never articulate it this way, but what we're really saying is, I don't want God to be king. <laughs> I want to be king. One more. I think in our, in our day, we very often as Christians tend to diminish the significance of cultural influences on our kids, whether by way of television activities or their education. 
and how to approach uh, a holistic training of our children. We put countless hours and thousands of dollars into events and programs and sports and activities to give our kid every opportunity to grow. And, and with the best of intentions and motives, I might say. Both for their academic development and for their development in their hobbies. And yet, culturally, even among Christians, this is surprising to me, there are so many that are unwilling to even put a fraction amount of that same effort into helping their kids grow spiritually. And that's because I don't think we understand how spiritual growth happens and because we're buying some of the air that we're breathing in our culture. And so, so we'll get them a tutor if they're having a hard time in math, but if they're having a hard time gaining understanding about the things of God, well, we're just going to let that slide, and we'll say, they'll figure it out later. Maybe they just can't understand it yet. Or we'll buy them hundreds of dollars worth of sports equipment, but when it comes to paying the same amount of money to put them into a Christian camp or a youth group retreat, you just have to think long and hard if that's worth it financially. We'll serve in their schools or we'll teach their, or coach their sports teams. That's what good parents do. Good parents contribute to the schools. They help the schools. That's where the kids are. That's how we're in this all together. But then when it comes to the same dynamic for teaching Sunday school or leading Awana, well, that's something that I don't know if I really want to, that's a lot of effort to put in. Maybe somebody else should be able to do that. We'll justify having them out of church for weeks at a time on Sunday for sports. But then, as time goes on, we'll begin to wonder why they have such an incredible passion for throwing balls, but almost no passion for God. And we'll justify it, and we'll say, you know, that's... Good kids are involved in sports, and I love sports. I was a multi-sport athlete, but there's a weight of significance here that we need to consider. Some give little or no thought to the types of colleges that they want their kids to go to. There's a variety of factors, of course. Economics, their degree, what they're able to do, their own academics. But I, but I am surprised at how little thought Christians give to Christian colleges. It's not the only way, but it's a good way. Instead, we tend to push them really hard toward universities, the most prestigious universities, to get the highest degrees in the best fields that they can possibly earn, with little or no consideration for the fact that maybe by putting them in that prestigious university, you're actually putting them into an environment that is incredibly uh, that incredibly aggressive or militant toward attacking the Christianity that's very young in their own mind and development. And so we prepare them down this path and we keep saying, yep, go to this school, go to this school, yep, pursue this path, pursue this path, while all the while, we're not, we'd never say this, but, but they could be reading this to say, it's much more important for me to be a godless lawyer than to be a lowly but godly store clerk. <laughs> if we do those kinds of things, I think, I think there's part of us that just might be saying, I don't want God to be king. I want to be king. 
One of the biggest dangers in our culture today is the reality that for many of us, we've grown up and we're so accustomed to the dynamic in which everyone does what is right in his own eyes. If you're 50 years old or younger, this is the air that you have breathed your entire life. And when it comes to our interactions with our friends or even to our Christian faith, we excuse it away as the norm, even in church. But what we see in the closing chapters of Judges is that when we do that, the snowball effect of sin and short-sightedness is absolutely catastrophic. And so we conclude by asking just a very simple question. A question we've been asking throughout the series. A question that we have to evaluate every single day as a follower of God. Who is your king? (laughs) Is God really the king in your life? In all areas? Or are there some areas that you're just not willing to let him in there yet? Perhaps there are some areas that are still off limits. To allow God to be the king of your life is to say, is to live in a total recognition that his purposes and his glory are the chief importance of your entire life, all areas of your life. And in response, we surrender all areas of our life to this great and mighty king. And there's good news. The good news of the book of Judges is that when sin is presented in its heaviest, that the gospel of Jesus is all the more sweet. That God in his great mercy and love for us not only does not want us to be the king of our own life, but that he offers a very easy way for you to make him the king of your life. And it's through his son, Jesus. It's through saying, Jesus... My ways are not the best ways. (laughs) I can't save myself. I can't forgive myself of my sin. I can't chart the course for my life in a way that will make it the most meaningful or effective. Be my king. (laughs) Be my savior. Be my Lord. The book concludes with a warning and it concludes with an encouragement. Here's the warning. Make sure that God is the king over all the areas of your life. And here's the encouragement. It's not too late to make God the king over all the areas of your life. Let's pray together. Father, help us to see clearly, to evaluate plainly the areas that we hold on to ourselves. That even in the quietness of our hearts right now, that you would be encouraging us in our surrender and convicting us of our sin. That you are a great and mighty king and that you will not be manipulated, that you will not be taken half-heartedly, but that you command and deserve complete allegiance. And you're worthy of it. You're a loving and gracious God. And we remember Christ crucified now and the gift that you offer as we take the Lord's Supper. Amen.